This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Saturday edition of the Best of Fight Back from the week that was. We learned more this week how Canadians are feeling about long-term care. A new Angus Reid survey reveals 80% of respondents have changed their views toward long-term care, in large part because the majority of COVID-related deaths have been in nursing homes. And more than half say they personally dread the idea of themselves or a loved one eventually living in long-term care. While filling in for Libby on Monday, I was joined by our Zoomer squad to discuss Peter Mugrich, senior editor at Zoomer magazine, Bill Van Gorder, chief operating officer and chief policy officer at CARP, and David Kravitz, chief marketing officer at CARP and vice president at Zoomer Media. Well, it's no surprise, and we heard this at a very visceral level in the petition that we ran, that CARP ran to... uh, replace minister for long-term care minister fullerton in addition to over eight thousand responses over twenty two hundred people two thousand people took the time to write their personal comments and we had that verbatim in many comments i am a senior myself and i never want to go into a long term i'm afraid of this i'm afraid of this for myself i'm afraid of this for my parents and i'm expressing it using you know relatively clean and simple language some of the terms and some of the language was was quite uh, emotional and strident so none of this comes as a surprise well i mean bill who would want to go into long-term care after hearing the stories we've heard through the pandemic well that's right and even before the pandemic we know that almost 90 percent of uh, our members preferred not to go into long-term care uh, COVID has just exacerbated that uh, opinion, and now people are not just not wanting to go, they're afraid of going into long-term care. Mm-hmm. Peter, I mean, this is an issue that has horrified us all at the same time, but it has galvanized us. As David was uh, talking there about CARP members expressing their concerns and fears and frustrations about long-term care, it makes you wonder if long-term care or even revitalizing it or changing it in some way is the way to go as we move into the future. Yeah, well, Jane, an important part of that survey was the number of people who um, not only prefer home care but are now willing to pay for it. And and that's a huge breakthrough. Uh, the four people, you know, may have just said uh, home care seems like a preferable option, but not many would, would uh, back it up with dollars. And and now over 70% of Canadians said they're, they're willing to pay up for home care. And, and I think that's a big switch. Uh, and, and it's probably brought about by how disastrous the nursing homes um, responded to COVID. So I'm sure Bill's following that closely, but that, that seems to be a, a, like a step forward in, in CARP's battle to improve home care. So I guess the conversation now, David, is whether we move forward as a society and plan on 
moving the emphasis towards home care, or do we overhaul long-term care? And that was part of this survey. Three quarters of respondents say significant changes, if not a complete overhaul, should happen in long-term care, though the responses were divided on how to do that. Let me just give you a couple of them. 55% say they would be willing to pay an increase of 2% in their tax rate to fund improvements to long-term care. Three-quarters of respondents also say they would support making long-term care a fully integrated part of the public health system. David, your reaction to that? Well, I, I think it's—I think really it's a mixture of both because I think you have to redefine long-term care as including and being the, the bedrock is home care. There's always going to be a need for a medical type of facility for very late in life, end of life, uh, severe comorbidities, dementia, and so on. There's always going to be a point at which a, a small number of the population cannot continue to age at home. And it's no contradiction to say that that segment, that chunk, which is not that large, must be better run than it is today. It absolutely must be fixed. So there's no contradiction to say you've got to fix that hot mess, which it is, but at the same time, you've got to shift your view of what is long-term care in the first in the first place to say the bedrock is uh, home care. And I think it's a continuum, and I think as a society, we've got to look at this as a continuum. Stay at home as absolutely as long as you can. If you're one of the relatively small number who need uh, medical institutional support, then that should be delivered way better than it's been delivered so far. David Kravitz, Chief Marketing Officer at CARP and Vice President at Zoomer Media, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor at Zoomer Magazine, and Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, our Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Public health experts say the race is on between the vaccine and the Delta variant. As cases rise in the U.S. and parts of Europe, Australia, along with the U.K., not to mention Tokyo, where the Olympics are being held, we've yet to see this trend develop in Canada. We are leading the world in vaccination rates, with 80% of eligible Canadians having received one shot and about 65% fully vaccinated with two doses. Compare this with the United States, where just 50% of eligible residents are fully vaccinated. The push is on to ensure the Delta variant does not cause a fourth wave in Canada. But the experts say the unvaccinated need to step up and get their shots so this won't happen. What is deterring these individuals from getting vaccinated? Is it all the misinformation online or is there a real genuine fear for some and why? Joining me on Monday to discuss vaccine hesitancy Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director, Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network, and Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Professor at Queen's University. You know, I actually think it's a combination of things that continue, and they're much of the same factors that were leading people to uncertainty in the beginning. So there is still not enough 
uh, access in some parts of the country to vaccines or even to the booking and getting to the vaccines. That can be a challenge for some people. I think there is an assumption that we've made that all very easy for everybody. And perhaps in urban areas, we've made it easier but we still have some work to do there. There's the knowledge and understanding of how important it is to get vaccinated, what the vaccines are, so that people feel comfortable about the safety and how well the vaccines work and the process that got us to developing those vaccines. And then there's a trust issue, and that's a really, really tough one because there are many different reasons why people may have mistrust in the vaccines, in the way it's being rolled out, how they were studied, etc. That I think is kind of interesting, but increasingly we're going to have to pay more attention to. Dr. Evans, what about you? The biggest barrier to getting the unvaccinated vaccinated? Well, I think Dr. Hoda has really touched on really the really relevant points. What we know behaviorally about vaccine uptake is that there are there are probably six major categories that impact on people's decision about being vaccinated. One is threat perception. Uh, So the idea that you maybe perhaps might get it versus somebody who might say to themselves, well, I'll get it, but I won't get sick. There is, of course, the leadership issue, the trust that we need to have within leadership that's leading the work towards vaccine. People look at individual and collective interests somewhat differently. Dr. Hoda mentioned science communication, which is a big one. And there's still a lot of unfortunate misinformation and even disinformation that's emerging, suggesting somehow that this is highly experimental and we really don't know how well these vaccines work and how safe they are. And then there's a lot of things like the social context we work in within a family, within our norms within our peer groups, etc. And then there's, of course, the whole issue of stress and coping. And under stress and anxiety, humans tend to sort of deviate to simple ideas that can create a lot of cognitive bias, meaning that they really uh, shortcut their way to uh, trying to make a decision. And that's not good. And, and that's really difficult to overcome. I do want to talk about some of the myths and have both of you debunk these myths for our listening audience. And by the way, we do have some Zoomer radio listeners who do want to get in on on the conversation. First, though, I want to ask you both um, that we knew from the beginning we were having these conversations late last year. People wanted to wait. Some people wanted to wait. There were those who said, I will get the vaccine right away. There were others who said, I want to see how it's received b- before I get it. How much, Dr. Hota, is that playing into the current scenario that some people are still waiting? I think there still is a little bit of that hesitation around um, how well do these work. And I think one of the things that did us a disservice in that area was the rapidly changing information that was coming out, particularly around AstraZeneca, but, you know, with other vaccines as well, as we rolled out so rapidly and got, um, you know, the kind of post-surveillance information that you want to get with vaccines. And that's made a few people a little bit uneasy. But it's a natural process, and it's important to keep monitoring. And I think that uh, it's overall very helpful for us to understand how they work. Dr. Evans, do we have individuals out there still waiting to see how the wider population reacts to the vaccine? I totally agree that there are certainly probably people who think that we haven't uh, used the vaccine in enough people. Um, If you look globally, we've administered over 1 billion vaccines around the world. Uh, Here in Canada, those numbers are well up into the millions of doses. And I think if there was even a rare safety signal beyond the rare ones we've already seen, we would have seen that by now. So um, I, I do understand that people 
continue to think that they don't have enough information. But, I mean, we really have rolled out these vaccines with great success into billions of people around the planet, and we are not seeing any dreadful, terrible things popping up that would be unexpected. So it's no longer the guinea pig phenomenon. We are now vaccinating the general population and doing it safely and with great effectiveness. Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases and professor at Queen's University. And Dr. Susie Hota, medical director, infection prevention and control at University Health Network. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, what to do about the surge in coyote sightings in Toronto. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The calls are growing louder to make COVID vaccines mandatory for healthcare workers. In fact, Toronto Mayor John Tory said in recent days he would like to see them become mandatory not just for healthcare workers, but education workers as well. But Premier Doug Ford is refusing to entertain the idea, saying he does not want to force anyone to get vaccinated even though he continues to urge healthcare workers who are unvaccinated to get their shots. It was a topic of debate with our strategy panelists on Tuesday. Libby Snymer was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Well, no, I think mandating anything to, to you know, as, a, as when you're a leader is a challenge in and of itself. I think that, you know, and, and especially in, in the healthcare space. And now, I, look, I, I tend to agree with him on this. I don't think you should be mandating anything when it comes to vaccines, which is, you know, obviously a, a personal choice because people do, you know, have uh, other issues with vaccines or they just don't want to do it. And, and mandating anything can get, gets into that state. Well, what do you do with people who aren't, aren't going to vaccinate or decide not to go uh, the route of, of, of a forced vaccine? Are you jailed them? It's not, it's not forcing them. It's just if you want to work in this particular sector where other right. people are at risk, right? So nobody says you have to get it. No, but you're, so you're essentially, you are though, Libby, because you're essentially saying if you don't do it, then you can't work. So you can't have a livelihood. So look, I think at the end of the day, it really should be upon the, the, the unions or the associations to force their members to, to get to something as opposed to the government having to be a heavy hand on, on mandating it. I, I think that most people would, would expect that the healthcare workers should and ought to for their own reasons and for the safety of others more than anybody else want to get vaccinated. So the fact that there's people that are resisting it uh, means that they likely will they'll, they'll likely resist it even if it's mandated. So I think the premier is, is being cautious about this. I think he's been very clear in ensuring and then sending out, you know, forced statements to say, please vaccinate. He's making it abundantly accessible for people to get vaccinated, especially healthcare workers, especially teachers who are going to be going to school in, in September uh, to teach their kids, hopefully. So these are folks that are, are frontline and should, on their own level of responsibility, be wanting to and 
and be expected to be vaccinated as opposed to having government say you are forced to be vaccinated. Well, you know what? And I'm going to throw it to Charles. As, as somebody who's been uh, on the receiving end of health care services recently, it is a very vulnerable place not to to know. And I just saw another tweet a couple of days ago that said that that some home care uh, nurses are being told not to disclose. Uh, you know, I, I came into contact with people who uh, disclosed, some who didn't. And uh, it's just a very vulnerable place. And the people who are most likely to suffer are the most vulnerable. So Charles, where are you on this? Well, you know, uh, there's two points that John made. One was the government shouldn't be the ones mandating. But I think I, I heard him say it's okay for employers to mandate. Or unions, he said, yeah, and passing the, the buck. And, and, and if that's the case, then they should be vaxxed. They should have, uh, let's put it this way, they are, they, they're free not to be vaccinated, but they're not free, and they shouldn't be free to inflict others. And that's the point. So in our workplaces and so forth, I think the employers should have the right to say, hey, you can't come to work if you're not vaccinated because you're going to put other people at risk. And I think the teachers and the, and the frontline staff and those others that are employed by certain agencies of government should have the right to say, no, you have to be vaccinated in order to come to work. Just as we want people coming to our country, we don't want them coming to our country if they're not vaccinated. We should impose restrictions on those flying into Canada to make sure that they're vaccinated, just as other countries are going to ask the same of us. Again, Canadians are free not to be vaccinated, but you shouldn't be free to have infliction and to cause harm for others. Like, we're doing our part to provide herd immunity. We're doing our part to move uh, the, the needle forward, literally, and so should they. And they'll benefit from it, and that's fine. But Really, if my kids are at risk going into school because a teacher's not being vaccinated, that's not cool. Well, you know what? And uh, Karen, I mean, I think there's an element of ageism here because teachers are required to be vaccinated. Nine vaccines. I, uh, this is before COVID. And here are healthcare workers who are dealing with very vulnerable older populations. And we've seen deaths among older people who are vaccinated because the older you are, you have immunosenescence and, and you're not as well protected. Is Doug Ford going to have to backtrack on this? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have a very different opinion than, than John and Charles because uh, I do think that the Ford government has got to soften its stance around mandatory vaccines in certain circumstances. Um, and I say that because I run a facility for kids with disabilities under 12 who cannot be vaccinated. So I said to the camp staff, if you want to be a camp counselor, you need to be vaccinated. Now, I didn't do that. I'm subject to human rights violations. There's no question about it. If one of my camp staff doesn't agree with that position, they have the opportunity to take me to the Human Rights Commission, and I would have to defend my position. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Souza, former Ontario Liberal Finance Minister, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Fight Back's Tuesday Strategy Panel. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We're hearing about more coyote sightings in neighborhoods across Toronto. And in some cases, these coyotes have been attacking dogs and people. As of last week in Toronto, coyotes have attacked 10 dogs, more than total for the entire year previous. Of those 10 attacks, five of the dogs died. On Tuesday in Scarborough, a woman said a bold coyote nipped her pant leg off while she was gardening. 
And last week, we were all transfixed by a video of a coyote chasing a 10-year-old girl who was saved by her tiny dog. Fight Back gathered a panel of experts to discuss this concerning trend. Libby was joined by Leslie Sampson, founding executive director of Coyote Watch Canada, Esther Adderd, director of Toronto Animal Services, and Roger Dent, senior trustee of Witchwood Park. You know, we've been having a, a growing coyote issue for, for some time. You know, Witchwood Park is located at Bathurst and St. Clair in Toronto. So we're in a, a very urban, very central part of the city. You know, we have a ravine space, but it's not connected to any of the major ravine systems. So we're actually a small, isolated urban environment. You know, we uh, have had animals for many, many years. We've had raccoons, we've had foxes, we've had, you know, all the usual uh, small urban animals. But our first coyotes showed up about four or five years ago. And uh, initially, uh, there was one coyote, and uh, that coyote went on its way after uh, perhaps uh, being around for a month. But over the last few years, the numbers have increased, and uh, this year we actually had a a mating pair spend uh, a month or two in the park. And so we had a a small pack of, uh, by some reports, as many as five or six coyotes uh, living in our neighborhood. Esther Adard, uh, this week uh, we've seen video of a number of cases. We saw that dog being injured uh, just yesterday. A woman was attacked in her garden. Um, yes, the city is aware of um, those incidents, but they can all be explained because coyotes in those neighborhoods are being fed regularly by people, and so the behavior is changed due to all of that feeding. There have been photographers trying to take pictures of the pups that have been luring the coyotes with food regularly. Also in those neighborhoods, we found that there are a lot of issues with garbage overflowing, and those are all attractants for all wildlife, not just coyotes. And so that may um, explain why these things are happening in that neighborhood. Well, I can assure you that that in Rogers' neighborhood, people are not feeding coyotes. Not in that neighborhood, perhaps. And I'm not familiar with everything that's going on in that neighborhood. Um, We have um, had reports of coyote sightings, a lot of sightings in that neighborhood. We haven't had reports of any attacks in that neighborhood as such. Dogs should be walked on leash. Often when they're not walked on leash, they're away from owners. And so that can, you know, mean that coyotes will approach. Leslie Sampson, would you say it's all because of the extra food that's around? Yes, that's kind of the beginning of how these situations evolve to where we are right now. You would be surprised in every community how people are providing those food resources, maybe not deliberately, but inadvertently, whether it's a bird feeder, feeding other little critters in the backyard or not handling garbage appropriately. And without actually doing a site investigation, it would be pretty anecdotal to comment on that. But I guess the other thing too, Libby, what I want to point out is if we look at coyotes as a blanket species across North America, you're looking at Stanley Park, you're looking at Calgary, each of those locations has precursors to reach a point where it's escalated, where there might be encounters with dogs or encounters with people. And I think we really have to look at the education, what's being done in terms of investigating to find out and identify and remove what those feeding attractants are 
Because what we're doing essentially is training a coyote that it's okay for them to have close proximity to us because they're getting that food reward. It's cause and effect. We see it at a bird feeder. Animals come to the bird feeder to eat. And so people handing out a food resource to a coyote actually does impair their instinct to stay away from people. Leslie Sampson, founding executive director of Coyote Watch Canada, Esther Adard, director of Toronto Animal Services, and Roger Dent, a senior trustee of Witchwood Park. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jim in Scarborough, who says he has friends who've been brainwashed into becoming anti-vaxxers. I've been listening to your great guests, and the reason I phoned is I'm a Caucasian guy in his late 60s and um, with a good education, and I have several friends, and I wanted to raise the issue several friends who who are anti-vaxxers and i wanted to raise the issue of the influence of the media and culture your guests you know highly intelligent people are using these uh, statements of logic and what i see among some people i know is that they basically i hesitate to use the word but they get all their information from shows like tucker carlson and rush limbaugh who is now no longer in the air and other far right wing, you know, news media. And this anti-vax stance is just one in a whole suite of ideas that they've virtually, uh, there's a film called The Brainwashing of My Father. And it exactly describes these two or three friends. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and call our fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeeb Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.